I'd like to begin with a thank you and then a prayer. First, let me thank Evan for reading those long scriptures filled with odd words. Evan is uh, entering his final year at Harvard Divinity School, and we're so glad you can be here today, and my good friends Jordan and Alana. But I'd really like to thank this worshiping congregation. As the person who oversees the field education program at Harvard Divinity School, I have a deeper gratitude for this worshiping congregation than you may know. Because you worship with, you welcome, you listen into their voices, so many of our students, those who come and serve as seminarians for sometimes a full year, but also those that you welcome to speak in Appleton Chapel on various mornings during morning prayer. You have been a magnificent partner to Harvard Divinity School and a teaching congregation, and for that I want to begin by giving you a resounding thank you. Let us pray together. Oh God, let the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth give glory always to you and to your word. Amen. The 126th Psalm tells us that they who sow in tears shall reap in joy. The psalmist goes on to say, he who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, he shall come again with shouts of joy. This past week and a half, we all have learned something about mourning martyrs. We already knew, didn't we, that such times could be terribly difficult. We already knew that times such as these could open wide, gaping wounds. But we've learned something very special and different that we all need to learn more about. The people of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, to whom we are sending a love offering, thank you, this morning. The people of Mother Emanuel Church have taught this country love and forgiveness arise not out of ease and easy circumstances, but love and forgiveness come from facing right into adversity with courage and grace. They that sow in tears, they shall reap in joy. Love is more powerful than hate. This hour of national mourning over the assassination and cold-blooded murder of nine Americans in their church by a hate-filled racist bent on igniting war, well, he chose the wrong actions. He chose the wrong church to unleash a storm of hate. As a nation, we grieve and we shake with outrage over what has happened, even as we notice that those who have the greatest right to revenge, to hatred, to anger, instead express only love and forgiveness. We are learning from them how love is stronger than hate. 
A well-known hymn writer, Carolyn Winfrey Gillette, composed a new hymn in recognition of the significance of these deaths of the nine martyrs in Charleston. One stanza I will share with you it expresses our common grief. We grieve a wounded culture where fear and terror thrive, where some hate others for their race and guns are glorified. We grieve for sons and daughters lost, for grandmas who are gone. O oh God, we cry with broken hearts. This can't continue on. On Friday, President Obama eulogized the Reverend Pinckney, who was murdered even as he led Bible study and welcomed the stranger. The President's participation in the service was a way for our whole nation to declare the nine who died, their families, are not alone in their sorrows. Now is the time for black and white Americans, for people of all racial identities, for people of hybrid identities, no matter how different our experiences of danger, grief, and fear. Now is the time for all of us to go together and express a conviction we can overturn our legacies of racism and discrimination. As the Jewish community refers to their ritual of joining with others as they grieve, this is a time when we must sit shiva together. When we share sorrows, we express a kind of solidarity that's been sorely lacking in this country. We begin to build a bridge over an unacceptable divide when we recognize together the reality of ongoing terror that is a lot for some but not everyone in this country. Did you see the article last weekend in the New York Times Magazine by Claudia Rankin? The title of the article is this, The Condition of Black Life is Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. There, Rankin articles argues that black reality is profoundly different because the fear, the terror, never really subsides. It's the condition. And it is time we all declare such conditions are unacceptable. Can I hear an amen? Amen. We build solidarity with others by really going there and staying. Such a journey is not going to be like, you know, stopping by on the way to the grocery store. This isn't going to be baking a casserole and dropping it off on the front porch. We've got to really abide with others and be touched by what others experience. It's not an option, as we know, for the black community to sit for a while and consider it done. Claudia Rankin confirms this distinction when she says, Though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed for simply being black. No hands in your pockets, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day. No turning onto this street, no entering this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there. No talking back, no playing with toy guns, 
no living while black. We all need to count the cost of the white community's indifference to the black condition of mourning. No doubt there are other steps we must take to build lacking, lasting reconciliation. It starts, however, when we accompany those who live in a place of mourning. Today's texts in 2 Samuel and Mark's Gospel offer a word that will help us as we make meaning, as we continue to remember the nine. In 2 Samuel, we read of David's mourning for Saul and Jonathan, killed on the battlefield. And then in the fifth chapter of Mark, we read about Jesus healing the woman in chronic pain and raising the dead child of Jairus to new life. These scriptures point us toward what happens when our leaders, indeed when our Lord, accompanies us in the place of our grief and mourning. David shepherded the people of Israel as they mourned the death of their king, Saul. And Jesus went into the room with wailing mourners before giving the 12-year-old girl new life. These stories remind us of the power of accompaniment and remember, after all, that the very name given for Jesus in Matthew's Gospel was Emmanuel, God with us. God goes with us in every hour of our need. In 2 Samuel, we heard David's magnificent poem of sorrow over the loss of King Saul and his son Jonathan, David's beloved friend. This remarkable piece of poetry, some say it's the finest poem in the Hebrew Bible, this remarkable poem is often called a dirge. It's a form of poetry devoted to the expression of mourning over the dead. And then the hymn with which I began the sermon also is a type of dirge, a poem expressing the magnitude of our grief. So David mourns the tragic and unexpected loss of people close to him. Saul and his son Jonathan died on the battlefield, and so Israel lost their great leader. Saul was the great king of Israel. These were shocking deaths. They were unexpected. And these deaths signified the triumph of Israel's enemies on the battlefield. David's sorrowful poem proclaims the pain of a whole nation in grief. And as we read David's poem, we learn how much King Saul meant to the community and how much David's dear friend Jonathan meant to him. In 1 Samuel, we read that Jonathan's soul became bound up with David's. They were BFFs, best friends forever. We learn not just about Saul and Jonathan, however, we learn a great deal about David. This is the very moment, remember, when he becomes king of Israel. He ascends to the throne because of death. You see, Saul and perhaps his successor Jonathan, his son, they're dead on the battlefield, so now David becomes king. And we learn here in this passage that when he becomes king, he doesn't just skip forward in joy, he pauses. He mourns. He recognizes the passing of a great leader. He gives tribute. No doubt most of you have lost someone close and dear to you, and in that moment you must have known the dissonance 
between your own experience of pain and the way the world just seemed to keep going. Poet W.H. Oden proclaims such sorrow in his well-known poem, Funeral Blues. Its first stanza explains that deep pain so well. Stop the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos. And with muffled drum, bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. True mourning embraces a temporary halt to life in honor of the deep-felt sense of the chief mourners. Everything should stop. This is the very kind of pain that David points toward when he says, Oh, hills of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain on you or bountiful fields. The first, most important move of solidarity is to stop. Don't try and fix it. Just recognize the magnitude of the loss. But there's something even more complicated and fascinating to us today behind David's grief. You may recall that King Saul was a kind of mentor to David. David was a very talented musician, and he played music for him in his court. He was a harpist. He sat there and he played the harp. But King Saul was a man of volatile moods, and on several occasions he was very jealous of David and his charisma, his good looks, and his tremendous talents. Saul actually picked up a spear and threw it at David while he was sitting there playing the harp. David had to learn how to get out of the way of Saul's violent anger and murderous intent because Saul pursued David. David had to live in terror and fear of King Saul. There was nothing David had done to earn this. David had done nothing against Saul. He had just been himself. So it was a completely unfair and unearned type of prejudice that King Saul had. And it was very violent against David. So David was living in unjustified but absolutely rational fear and terror until the death of Saul. So this very poem of mourning and grief is offered when his tormentor has died. So David doesn't shout for joy as you might expect. So we learn about David in this moment. We learn what kind of king he will be. He's going to be the kind of king where his grace exceeds expectations. King David will be one whose perspective is wide and whose vision is on the horizon. David will choose love over hate. And that's the way it is in moments of mourning and difficulty. We do talk about those we have lost. In acting out our grief, however, we redefine who we are. We are, in grief, becoming who we may be in joy. We become our better selves through how we respond to life's challenges. You will recall with me that amazing moment in the courtroom the day after the murders in Charleston when Nadine Collier, daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, her voice rising in anguish, said to the man accused of the crime, you took something very precious away from me. I will never, ever talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. 
Now, when Alana Simmons, who was also in the courtroom, heard Nadine say those words, she found courage to say something equally remarkable. Having lost her grandfather, Alana said, we are here to combat hate-filled actions with love-filled actions, Ms. Simmons said, and that is what we want to get out to the world. That kind of grace-filled response to hatred is possible for those who have long engaged in spiritual practices. The community of Mother Emanuel AME Church was engaged in the kind of Christian practice too rarely appreciated by society. They were studying the fourth chapter of Mark. The story's right before what we read today. And they were praying together. We marvel at these family members' capacity to operate in love despite their fear and terror. Yet we also know that sometimes it's the terrifying places that can become places of transformation and grace. A friend of mine says God cares about the things that keep you up at night. Well, worry and mystery are the common territory of Mark's gospel. Here in the fifth chapter of Mark, we hear two intertwined stories filled with action and distress. In these stories, we recognize the characters because just like us, these folks probably don't sleep too well. The woman is afraid and in pain. The father has that choking, fear-filled desperation you have when your beloved child is on the verge of death. They share with us the kinds of worries that keep us all awake at night. Jairus, the father in the story, was an important leader in the synagogue. I imagine he wasn't the kind of guy that often got interrupted when he was talking to somebody. But Jairus learned that when you were around Jesus, you were going to start noticing the invisible people, those at the margins. They mattered to Jesus, so they interrupted your life too. Just as Jairus began to pre, uh, present his case to Jesus, a woman shamed and separated by her chronic conditions reached out to receive healing from Jesus. All she did was touch his clothing, but with that simple touch, healing flowed from him to her in a demonstration that Jesus' body bore sympathy for her suffering body. Her touch on his clothing alone triggered her healing, her body and its brokenness became well when his body knew her pain. Jesus' solidarity with suffering was in his body. He literally felt her pain. Both healing stories in this passage rely on Jesus' touch for healing. Jairus wants Jesus to lay hands on his dying daughter. The woman touches Jesus' garment. The profound tenderness of human touch is a very intimate way to communicate solidarity. If your skin is clammy, I will feel that and know something of your fear when I touch you. If you have a fever burning up your tissues, I will feel that heat through my touch. If you're trembling with terror, my body will shake with yours when I touch you. If you're bleeding, I risk your blood coloring my skin when I touch you. You're not able to ignore the body's knowledge when you touch those who turn to you with their mourning. Their pain seeps into your way of knowing. Jesus' touch communicates that to us as well. 
Our God is one who has known and felt human pain. These intertwined stories of healing are about more than touch or miracles. They're about healing conversations. Those whose pain envelops them tell Jesus all about their needs, and Jesus humbly listens. In the story of Jairus' daughter, we learn not just that Jesus heals her, but also that he goes into the room where the family's pain is most profound. He enters into their experience and is fully, completely there with them. Our God has reminded us through the ancient stories of Israel and through Jesus' healing presence that God stands with us in solidarity. God shares our common lot. This, then, is what we must do. We must move with those who are most affected when hatred seems to win on the battlefield. We must move to the margins of society and notice the women cast aside, the children in desperate need of healing. We've got to go there to get there. What's next? The families in Charleston have started a movement they quite simply call Hate Won't Win. They have a Facebook page, and they invite each of us to capture moments when individuals act out of mercy when they could otherwise choose revenge and hatred. The path of grace calls for an open mind, but even more importantly, an open heart. If we tap the reservoir of goodness, Grace will make healing possible. Amen.